Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. All right, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're joining us on this episode. And I am delighted to have Bobby Joe Reed with us today. Hello. Thank you, Bobby <laughs> Joe. Yes. Um, it's funny, I have been in the recovery world now for almost three years, getting close to three years. And uh, I think I'd heard about the Healing House once or twice, but I had not experienced it. And then um, I'm, I met through, through, friend, through Adam Hamilton, I met Tom Langhofer. Yes. And then Tom's the one that started, uh, you know, he brought me down there on a Tuesday night and then ended up uh, really getting to know your story yeah, and watched under the influence. Yes. So Bobby Joe is the CEO founder of the healing house in Kansas city, Missouri. It's in the, the old Northeast part of Kansas city, yes. Missouri. And, uh, man, she has an amazing story that, that I want all of you to hear. And I'm excited about you hearing it. And you can also hear it on this, uh, had a documentary on yes. basically your life story and your work with the healing house called Bobby Joe under the influence. Right. I found it on Amazon prime. Yes. And so you can watch that. In fact, um, I know one of my sisters is home today sick and she's watching that. She just oh, texted nice. me right before you came. She says, Hey, what was that? What was that documentary? And I said, okay, oh, Bobby Joe under the influence. And I'm going to be interviewing her in just a couple of minutes. Very cool. <laughs> so. Well, I don't know if it'll make her feel better because <laughs> it's a cry. It's a crying it's, documentary, but yeah, but it's also super inspirational. Hope. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I found it. I found it to be super inspirational. Yeah. So let's, let's jump into your story. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Okay. Kansas City, Kansas. Um, I lived near downtown. My dad was a KCK police police officer. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And I have two older brothers, one one year older and one three years older. So there was a one-year gap. So we were pretty much stair-steppers. But what? that's where I was You're born. the oldest? I mean, you're the middle or the youngest? I'm the baby. Okay. And the only girl. Okay. So two older brothers? Uh-huh. One's how many old? Um, so I'm 60, 161, and 160, 63. Okay. Which one works at Healing House now? The oldest. The brother. oldest. What's yeah. his name? Greg. Greg. Okay. I met Greg when I was yeah. down there. Yeah, He's yeah. incredible. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you're growing up in Kansas City, Kansas. What schools are you going to there? I think it was Chelsea. It's been so long mm -hmm. ago. I think it was Chelsea. And we what used, high school would you have gone to? Oh, we moved out to 81st Street by oh. then in Wyandotte County. Okay. And so then I went to uh, Slagle. Did I go to Slagle? No, Washington High School. I'm trying to think. The uh, I think it was Arrowhead. 
um, middle, you know, the seven to mm -hmm. nine or seven to mm -hmm. tenth grade. So, did you finish high school? No. Yeah. I was busy. <laughs> You've always been busy. Right? I have. Yes. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So what? What? Tell us what happened that that kind of got you, uh, you know, in a off track. I, is that a, is that okay to say that? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that, I, you know, I lived in a home. My mom had undiagnosed mental health issues. Um, I remember at one point she was gone for over a week, and they told us she was sick. And I believe she had a nervous breakdown. Mm. Of course, at five years old, I'm down in the woods smoking cool cigarettes and cigars with my brothers. At uh, five? At five. Jeez. I'd come home smelling like smoke, and I had really long hair. And my mom would say, sissy, you smell like, have you been smoking again? And, and I'd put my hand on my hip and I'd say, no, it's those dirty rotten boys. <laughs> I was, I was on it. So, um, so your brothers were corrupting you at a young age. Oh no, I wouldn't say that. It probably was the other way around, honestly. Um, but I hung out with the boys. We built forts. We had fun, standard kid stuff. Um, my older bro my brother that's a year in front of me, he um, had undiagnosed uh, inner ear deafness. Mm. And so I emulated his speech and his speech was messed, messed up. And we didn't know till he was 12 or 13 years old that he had that. He was dyslexic. Uh, is that what it's called when you do backwards? Uh -huh. And so that and uh, the speech impediment. So both of us had to go to speech classes. Oh, and I was always um, I was always chubby, and so I had very low self esteem. Well, my uh, my dad worked at a place called Save On. I don't know if you remember it. There's I do. Yeah. A blue law in Missouri. So on Sundays, all the Missourians would come to the Kansas side and go to this store and um, buy beer or something like that. Or there was a liquor store. There was a pet store. It was a department store. Um, so oh, like even. Yeah. So even mainline stores were closed, you mean? Yes. Oh, on Sundays, on Sundays okay, in Missouri. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so this was grocery, shoes, records, okay. anything. And so for the first, uh, I started working there at 12 years old. I worked full time every day after school, 12 hours on Saturday and Sunday. Wow. And so uh, for almost- Were you getting paid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But back then it was like, what, $1.50, $2 an hour, wasn't much. And um, so I started doing that, started, I did dishes in a stock room for almost a year they had bought a barn full of dishes and so i'd take five gallon buckets one to wash one to rinse and i'd go clear across the store to fill my buckets and i did that for months mm. and then i put them all in sets and then um, that guy hired me to run the candy counter and so we had scoop ice cream and we had soft serve and we had fresh roasted nuts and that's when you bought candy by the pound. So I started hanging out with a bunch of older people. I have this low self-esteem and never felt like I really fit in much. Uh, I did, I always had lots of friends, and but I was still kind of detached, I could say. And I lived in a home 
that was very siloed. Everybody had their own life going on. Um, my mom was a hoarder, so we no longer got, when that went really south, uh, we didn't get together and eat dinner anymore. Everybody was in their own little world. I mean, mm. we lived under the same roof, but we were so disconnected. Mm. And um, so at 12 is the first time I was out running with some work buddies and they got some alcohol. And the first time I got a hold of some alcohol, I drank till I got drunk. And boy, I thought I have arrived. You know, so these people are all six, seven years older than me. Mm. And now I feel like I fit in with them. You know, you get a few drinks and you think you're a great dancer and a comedian, right? So um, I couldn't wait to do it again. And wow. so I started hanging out with them every weekend. I tell my mom, I'm going to spend the night at Nancy's house. Nancy's mom was never around. And we would go out clubbing to pogos and different. Yeah. I mean, you're at 12, 13 years yes, old. Yes. And they're just bringing you in, bringing oh, yeah. you along. Yeah. Um, wow. Did you look, you must've looked old for your age or something. Um, as long as I don't now. Um, <laughs> right. Well, I, yeah. I had my, it helps if you down, uh, date the bouncer at the club uh, to get in. You're yeah. supposed to be 18 back then. I got a copy of my cousin's ID, but she had black hair, brown eyes. We <laughs> looked nothing alike, Yeah. but yeah so I, you got a fake id yeah and and my my parents really didn't question anything yeah. i was gone every weekend wow i remember my bouncer boyfriend broke up with me and my answer to that at work was to get a six pack of beer which i knew the liquor store guy i got a six pack of beer went in the bathroom and slammed it at 13 years old wow. i was already an alcoholic i know that so you think that's you think that's the genetic component to this disease? Do you think? I think there is. When I first got uh, into recovery, I used to say, I need to find out why. Mm -hmm. If I had a relative, if this, mm -hmm. you know, I was looking for the whys. Mm -hmm. And there's multiple factors that play into that. It's not just genetics. I think genetics can play a role in it mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think it was a combination of things. Yeah. Yeah. Your family environment. Oh, gave yeah. you plenty of space to do whatever yeah. I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So 12, 13, you're already starting. Are you drinking every day at 12 and 13? At 13, I was. Gosh, dang. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. You know what? I So having only been in the recovery world for almost three years now, it has, it has amazed me how many people that are in recovery started yes drinking at such young ages 12 I, to 15 are very common yeah ages. and and i've even met some even earlier than yeah. that which is just bizarre to me yeah. i just yeah wow i remember my parents <clears throat> in 1976 it was a bicentennial year mm -hmm. and they bought all these um porcelain statuarines that were filled with whiskey right mm -hmm. and there were like 12 of them i nailed all of them yeah and finally you know their head their little head came off there was a cork in it 
um, I think it was Tom or, uh, Thomas Jefferson that got me busted. My mom was dusting and his head rolled off across the room. Oh, and then she's like, this is empty. And then she started checking a ball and they were all empty. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it was on. After I broke, I broke my back uh, when I was 15 in a car accident, alcohol related and, fr and fractured my neck. I had three compressed fractures in my back and one in my neck. And so for the next year, I saw Librium, Darvacet, and Valium, all three of those Ooh. three times a day. Plus you're drinking? Oh, still drinking. Ooh. But I was kind of drinking like Miller Ponies and Boone's Farm and stuff like that. But I was on those medications for a year, and I was in a metal body brace that was like a corset in front. Right. And it came clear up here. I mean, I had to quit school and get a GED at that point. I couldn't like carry books or anything. And there were no elevators in my high school, so it was just not an option. But they kept me on all these pills for a year. And then when they went to take me off the pills is when I found brown whiskey. And because I shook all the time from, you know, I didn't know what it was. I just shook all the time. I thought it was related to my back. I'm sure now that it was related to all that minute narcotic medication, wow. but I was still drinking. But when they took me off that, that's when I started drinking harder stuff like whiskey. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I, I hadn't, I, I, I smoked weed for the first time when I was 14. We're, we're, we're the same age basically. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I would, I was never in my mind, I was not going to ever do that. But two of my closest friends, you know, one summer we went out back and they all of a sudden they're, you know, like rolling a, mm -hmm. what we called a joint back then. And, yes. um, and I did it like I kind of caved into the peer pressure of it, but then I kind of started liking it. So then I was kind of into the rec recreational drug world of the 70s, 14, right. 15, 16. My parents never caught me. They didn't know what was going on, but they did get worried about how freaky my friends were looking, you know, like seventies oh, long yeah. hair and long all that hair, kind of stuff. And, yeah. And so they finally, we got a new youth pastor. They sent me off to youth camp and I really did have a dramatic experience there. Came to Christ two months later, felt called to be a pastor. So I, I left Amen. all of that behind until much, much later, yeah. years later, when I'm in my fifties, do I end up trying to work on an insomnia problem and I get a, and I, I, I'm on prescription Xanax. Oh my. Yeah. And then I started throwing in some alcohol on top of that. And that got me in trouble really f quickly. Absolutely. You know? And that was only about a two and a half year period. So it wasn't like I had this long, Don't take long, long history, but, um, but at 14 and I never really drank much at 14, 15 and 16. I was, I tried about every kind of drug that was available. Me too. I did drink a few times, but never even really got drunk from it or anything. I was mm -hmm. kind of an athlete and I didn't oh, like okay. feeling sloppy or anything. So, but anyway, um, so at 15, 16, you come off, you, you come off of these drugs, mm -hmm. you're, you find hard liquor, mm -hmm. you're already out of school. Yes. Is that right? Cause they're broken back. Yes. Yeah. And so pick up from there. What, um, well, 
I had never had the birds and bees talk with my mother or anything like that. But I did know that um, not being intimate with somebody was important. You were not supposed to just sleep around or anything like that. And uh, while still in my back brace, oh, a week before my 16th birthday, I was at a party. Everybody's getting high, drinking, and um, a guy decided to rape me. And um, I was pretty much defenseless because I'm in this mental body brace. And um, back then, people didn't talk about rapes. Um, I remember a couple of years after that, a Sunday, you know, do you remember the Sunday night movies? They were big deals. Everybody, they would have this, uh, and there was a Sunday night like movie. Like on TV? You yes. Mean? Okay. Yes. Yeah. And families would gather mm-hmm, to watch it. Mm-hmm. And so um, there was a story about a lady that had been raped and her whole world just fell apart. Mm. And I actually sat there, this was a couple years after this had happened to me. And I sat there and I thought, she just needs, what's the problem? She needs to move on because that's how I numbed myself Mm -hmm. to a lot of different things that I experienced. Okay, this happened. There ain't nothing I can do about it. Just move on. Keep pushing through. Mm -hmm. And um, so, um, you know, some things spiraled um, out from there. My parents... Uh, found out I became pregnant. My folks found out. From the rape thing? There was another rape after that. Oh, wow. And uh, yes, I became pregnant from a rape. Oh, wow. And um, so my parents said, you're not having this baby. You're going to have an abortion. And I know that's a rough topic to talk about, especially right now. Mm -hmm. But I did it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you, that is the most soul robbing um well prostitution is it's like that it robs your soul but you know something broke in me that day Mm. and um i knew it was wrong but you know nobody had ever talked to me about god or we didn't even talk about god Mm -hmm. and so it wanted a spiritual conviction but it was a right and wrong I, I know this is wrong, and it made me go even deeper into my addiction. And when I came home from that, of course, I smoked weed all the way home. I'd been taking quaaludes that day, Valium. And when I got home, my folks never spoke to me about it. I went to my room, and I stayed in my room that night, and we never discussed it. Mm. And so here I am, just keep keep pushing on, mm. let's get over it, and I'm just shoving this stuff down. And now I'm using more. And at that point, I became pretty promiscuous because I had had these several rapes. I had not been before the rapes. And um, then my addiction got even deeper. Yeah. So at, so at what, what age did you move? Did you end up moving out of your family's home? Was this... You know, it, this is the odd thing. I always had a bedroom in my parents' home because pretty much right from the beginning, I'd go, I hate to admit this, but I'd go somewhere, I'd get drunk. I would hook up with whoever I wanted to hook up with. 
I'd stay with them, and usually the result of that, eventually they would try to kill me or they'd beat me up. And then I'd go back to mom and dad's house, heal up, and then I'd go out and do it again, after again, after again. Jeez. And that was my MO, that's what I did. Wow. Yeah. It crazy. I mean, it was just insanity for years. So you fell into uh, an abusive, yes, violent group of men. It sounds yes. like yes. And these are and you had always been hanging out with older men. Yes. And so some of these older men just started taking advantage of you, oh, yeah. and then this just drove your your self esteem and your oh yeah and your at the end just drove. Late, yeah. much later it, it just got worse and worse yeah. and i accepted you know when you start going down the scale and things get worse and worse you just learn to accept it like i was talking about just a minute ago you know oh well this is how it is we'll just make do with what mm -hmm. we got and mm -hmm. you keep going farther down and you keep accepting it and it's just your life and that's how it is yeah, so this is, we're talking like, this is like 1977, 78, 79. Yes. How many years did you keep a bedroom at your, your parents' house? My, basically my whole life. Okay. They had a bedroom there for okay, me. Okay, so you always had a yeah a spot to. Yeah. My dad was always my hero, and they say opposites attract, and I'm telling you what, my mom... <laughs> was very feisty like me and on steroids. And my dad was this mellow, calm guy. Hard, I, I heard him cuss once or twice mm. in his whole life. I never, I mean, he was just chill. And mom was like, Wah! cussing, screaming, carrying mm. on, total opposite. So my dad always defended me because I'm his baby girl. Mm. And he would, my mom would be cussing and screaming at me and he'd tell her, quit, stop, don't do that to her. So I always was allowed to go back. Was there any kind of faith orientation in your mom no. and dad? They didn't take you to no. a church environment or anything like that? When I was very young, me and my brothers used to have to walk to school. This should have been a sign of what was to come. And my mom would pack you know, we had little lunches and they'd give you the milk crates at school, mm -hmm. um, the little milk cartons. And so there was this alcoholic, they used to call them bums. I know that's inappropriate, but there was this guy that back then they called him a bum. And so I couldn't stand to walk by this guy and I felt so bad for him. So I'd give him my lunch every day on the way to school. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so... Um, Finally, my teacher called my mom and said, why is Bobby Joe not bringing lunch? She needs to bring her lunch. And my mom kind of wigged out. And I told her, I'm, I'm going to give him my lunch anyway. So my mom started packing two lunches so I could give the homeless guy oh, a lunch. Wow. But there was a, a church around there too. And so me and my brothers would go to church just a few times, not very long. Um, I think at about five, six years old, I was doing laundry for the family. We were, I already knew how to operate a washing machine and, and do stuff like that. So it, a few times, I remember Sunday school, just a few times, but that didn't yeah. last very long. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so from, 
from the late seventies all the way up until 1995, you were, what was your lifestyle? In, insanity, just from one bad thing to the next, to the next. Um, I was just spiraling out of control. I, I remember I went to treatment. I was with the guy and uh, we burglarized a house. He did, I said in the car. But my tags were in my name and my dad's name, Officer Reed. Mm. So the next day, the detectives at the homeowner came home and we just took off. I had lost my job due to drinking. And uh, so I still needed money to drink. And so uh, they went to Division Two Police Department to see if Officer Reed had been involved in a burglary. Oh, so now off to treatment I go, right? And um, I remember my dad came to visit one Sunday and he said he was Clean like my while you were in treatment? While I was in treatment. Which, which treatment did it was, you remember? It uh, was Valley Hope, Atchison, Kansas. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he came up to visit and he said, Sissy, I was cleaning your room and there were 13 fifth bottles under your bed. I didn't know. They were just pretty much tuned out. I was drunk all the time then, all the time. Wow. I would... Before my feet would hit the floor to go to work, I'd drink at least a half pint, if not a pint, just to get myself able to go. And then I'd drink throughout the day at work, so I lost my job. But um, So I went to Valley Hope, but you know what? I thought I worked all 12 steps there, which is insane to even say now. And I fell in love, tall, dark, handsome, crackhead in treatment. <laughs> You don't hook up with a treatment guy. And so that very quickly, we ended up in an apartment together. He was smoking crack. I went two years, though, without drinking and drugging because, you know, I didn't really want to change anything. What, what years were, were those? Oh, my gosh. I think 20, 21 to 23, something so like in that. Early 80s. Yeah. Early 80s. You went two years? Two years. Oh, wow. But here's the problem. Nothing here changed. And nothing here changed and nothing there changed yeah right so you didn't have the spiritual connection yeah. white knuckle you, you didn't change your your thinking your, the mental nothing component no spiritual component. they told me to go to recovery meetings so i did i went to two <laughs> that will cure me uh and you thought you'd already worked the steps in treatment yeah in treatment the 12 yeah, they, steps. they run you through yeah, 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 it was ridiculous. You can't work the 12 steps, but, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, it was just, I just was white knuckling it and he was smoking crack and eventually he was beating me real bad. He had broke my uh, leg on the waterbed frame fighting over rent money. And um, so I had my brothers come get me because my leg was broken and um Anyway, as soon as my leg healed up, I thought, man, I really love him. I'm going back. Oh, gosh. So I go back, and he's smoking crack when I walk through the door. So now I take a hit off the crack pipe, and immediately, within 15 minutes, I'm at the liquor store. So now I'm smoking crack and drinking. I mean, bad. Mm. Bad. It spiraled mm -hmm. out of control. I mean, everything just... You know, mm -hmm. and then he beats me up one time. I'm going to go show his mom. And and I stop at a gas station. And that's where I meet 
next Mr. Wonderful gas station attendant dude that had just got out of prison for accidentally stabbing someone 23 times and killing them. It was an accident. Mm. And then I live with this guy in his mom's basement until mm. he tries to come. I mean, that's what my... Wow. And then I ended up with a guy, um, he went back to prison for one assault he had on me. He attacked me with a two liter bottle of Dr. Pepper mm. and in a parking lot and they had to stop him and they sent him back to prison. But, you know, then I'm making a liquor store run and I meet a couple guys and they said, hey, I couldn't get, you know, day labor where you go work for a day, you get paid for a day. I was trying to do that. I couldn't get a ticket out. And I meet these two guys at the liquor store and they're like, we're gonna kick it today too, come with us. And I did. And I hooked up with the one I wanted to and then he left for a while and then he came back and accused me of being with the other guy. And uh, then he said, you're gonna make this up to me. Six foot five, 220 pounds and a crack smoker. And so what I'd ran into was not a new potential boyfriend, but a pimp, mm. and I didn't know it. Mm. And um, so- This is like in the 80s? Yeah, in the 80s. And so um, it, was, it was so scary and demoralizing. And at that point, I didn't ever talk to my family again for years because I was too ashamed of what I'd become. I had moved over state lines at that point. So he point. basically started- he Pimping me. And, 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 and you were living in fear of his yes. potential to kill you, basically. Oh, he, many times he broke yeah. my cheekbone here. Um, one time he kicked in eight hotel room doors looking for me to kill me. He would beat me unmercifully Oof. and God. then- when I'd be in that shape, and I look, many times I look like a raccoon, my eyes were black all the way and the white parts were full of blood. Uh. Um, I was treated like an animal. And when I'd be so beat up that I couldn't prostit be prostituted or I couldn't work a day labor job, then that's when I started staying under um, like the box cards on the back of semi trucks. They'd park them next to this liquor store it used to be Gateway Liquors, and um, I would survive under those because, of course, he didn't want nothing to do with me when I couldn't make him money. Mm. So, um, and every conscious moment, I, I hadn't been partying or having fun for years. Mm. Alcohol became an essential thing for me. I was so sick. Whenever I quit drinking, I'd shake out of my skin, vomit, diarrhea, just so sick. Mm. And... Um, so I would stay under the boxcars and a lot of bad things happened to me, um, mm. under there because uh, I was vulnerable. What part of the city was this? Uh, near downtown Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. So Campbell, uh, like 18 and Campbell, mm -hmm. all in 18th street. There was two day labor places. And then how I would find my way home most of the time was that old Western auto sign mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. lit up there were two hotels down by there the midwest hotel and the motor inn and we would stay in those cheap crazy hotels i mean i think we paid 17 dollars a night and the lady that ran motor inn miss pretty she was a little old lady 
And nobody had money going in there. We were all drug addicts and alcoholics. And somebody eventually killed her. Mm. And uh, they closed it, mm. closed it down. Yeah. And then the Midwest, I was so shocked, honestly, when they started putting all that fancy stuff down there, condos and all this. Mm. I'm like, what are they thinking? Because I know what goes on in this mm -hmm. neighborhood. And it's been transformed now. But back then, mm -hmm. it was really bad. Wow. So you've. God, so that's amazing. You lived through all that. Um, and then you landed in a, in 1995, you ended up in a free detox, a free detox mm -hmm. in Kansas city. Yes. Off Campbell, right okay. in the same area I was okay. running in my, uh, I don't know if I should say this, but you can cut it out. Uh, <laughs> the only thing I knew about this detox prior to getting there is that, um, my pimp had taken me there one time to detox because my alcoholism was interfering with my job performance. I do not put that on a resume, by the way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's even like, you got to go get help. Right. Even the guy that's pimping me out God. thought, you need some help. And of course, I walked out within a few minutes and um, I got there in a yellow cab. I was living with a guy, chronic alcoholic. And I still had liquor left. My dad had died one month to the day of me getting sober. Mm. So I stayed at my mom's house for a week and she got me 110 milligram values from her doctor. She said, please don't drink and disgrace your dad's memory. People will be coming by. So I stayed blued out mm. for the next week. And I bought a bottle on the way over when my dad died. But I decided I'm never going to open that. I'm going to make my dad really proud of me and never drink again. And my dad had always been my hero. We did not hardly even know one another, but he'd always been my hero. Mm. And so when he passed, it literally broke my heart. I tried to, when I got back home, I popped that top and nailed that bottle. And for the next three weeks, I never ate. I drank every conscious moment and I was going to kill myself drinking. And mm. I ended up in a yellow cab at this free detox. Okay. And that's really, it was 18 bunk beds in a rocked wall room with no ventilation. Everybody off the street, sick, funky. I mean, it was rough. Mm. And that's where God chose to bring me out of the darkness. Wow. And give me my purpose in life. Mm. Yeah. So how, how did you... I mean, did you have some sort of a spiritual awakening there or was it a gradual it was gradual process of it was gradual were you working the 12 steps there um, i i started i went to i did the detox for five days and then i was able to get in the treatment program which was right next door for the 30 days and this is what stuck to me when i was standing that detox we were all sick they had showers and bathrooms, but there was no hygiene products, no shampoo, no deodorant, no soap, nothing. So you could go in there and rinse off, but you couldn't even get clean or brush your teeth. And so at that point, I had been diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and that is the deterioration of your bowels. And it's a brutal disease. It feels like a, a rabid rag, raccoon is trying to eat his way out of your lower stomach. Mm very painful and uh, 
I was on 33 pills a day when I got there. I had post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, you, you name it, I had it. And um, so anyway, I was doing bake sales. I'd go to this flea market, I'd bake banana nut bread, zucchini bread, cookies, and I'd go to this flea market and sell them. That way I could still supplement my income. Mm-hmm. And so when I got out of the detox and treatment, I remembered being down there and not having anything. And so I'd go to the flea market and I could buy 10 little tubes of toothpaste, the hotel stuff for a dollar and bars of soap. And so I'd gather that stuff up with some of my earnings and then whatever baked goods I had left over, I'd go back down to the detox and I'd share it with people. Now I'm 34 years old and I have never known what I want to be when I grow up. I never thought I had any purpose in my life. I thought I was an it, you know, I didn't feel like I even was worthy breathing the same air. Mm. And uh, so when I started doing that, man, I seen that people were, you would have thought I gave them a bar of gold and I could see how happy they were. And I did it at first because it made me feel good. Mm But then I just started doing it because it became the next right thing to do. And I could figure out I'm helping people. Maybe I can, maybe I can be good at something, Mm. you know, and that's where it started. And I started carrying the message, 12 step message everywhere I could. Uh, My mom died three and a half years later of cancer and I took care of her. That was my spiritual experience. Um, I had another crackhead boyfriend, by the way even after you're sober oh yeah sick with it you know we're in an aa meeting smoke filled room buzzed up on coffee (laughs) salvation army guys come in our eyes lock and it is love (laughs) oh my goodness anyway (laughs) i've had a crazy life anyway so ted is his name and we're together and he's steady going out smoking crack so i'm kicking him my mom actually bought me a small house because I was living in a loveless relationship when I went to treatment. And mom said, you know what? Your dad would want you to have your own place, get some roommates so you can share expenses. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. So I did that, Ted moved in. He smoked a crack, I'm kicking him out. He started going to this church called Victory Outreach. And I couldn't understand these people. They came from Chicago, they had young kids and they're moving in crack addicts and people right off the street and they have a young daughter and I'm thinking, what are they doing? These people are nuts. Anyway, he started going there and he started getting better. Um, and I thought, man, I better take him back. I don't want any of those church girls to get my crackhead. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case he gets better, you know, I don't want to miss anything. So I would go to church periodically. I would go for the praise and worship and then I'd go to an AA meeting. But, you know, God knew what it took. Oh, he came home one time and said, you know, we're not going to be able to be together because we're not equally yoked. Oh. Why well, I had no clue what that meant. <laughs> and, I, and I figured it out. That means I have to go to church too. So I went and I ended up decorating and doing all the flower arrangements and curtains and window treatments for the whole church so i got involved i remember i was hanging with the pastor's wife one day i was so scared i was going to drop the f-bomb or do something <laughs> stupid i'm like oh i gotta what, watch everything what was the I pastor's said. name there dan you know? uh Just curious i'm trying to think dan i can't think of his last name it's been so long 
but I might know him. God knew what anyway. He, oh, um, so I'm trying to think. I can't think of it. Okay, we'll talk about it though. No, that's all right. Um, so I started going to this church periodically. My mom passed away of her cancer on December 30th, 1994, 1994. 1999, uh, 1999, 1999. Let me think. I was three and a half years sober. So 90, 98, 1998. Okay. And, um, so anyway, my mom passed away and on new year's Eve, I called the church people to be with Ted. And, uh, I was, I, I had been in interracial relationships for quite some time at that point and my family would never let whoever i was dating around because of course they weren't very stable relationships but also because the mixed thing that mm -hmm. you're dating a black person and mm -hmm. they just didn't know how the children would respond to that thank god things have changed a lot mm -hmm. however I think half of my family probably thought I was gay for years because I never brought a significant other with me. But anyway, so uh, <laughs> anyhow, so um, my mom passed and I'm out getting an urn for her ashes on New Year's Eve and um, everything's closing. I find this urn and I go home and the church was there with Ted earlier and the house is empty. My other two roommates had relapsed, and so I uh, wow. got home, and I thought, man, maybe he's out of the church. We're doing a New Year's Eve thing. So I drive out to the church, and I walk in, and he's not there. And so he's made a decision to go smoke crack oh, and no. get high and leave me at this time. And I remember, you know, every other time I had experienced big loss, I was always drunk or high to get me through it. I was numb. And this time, I really didn't want to do. I didn't want to do that, but it felt like my heart was down in my gut. So I went back home. I'm bawling my eyes out. I'm so lost. My dad had died. My mom had died. My boyfriend's out smoking crack. I lost my two roommates, and I got in the bed crying. And I prayed to God more humbly than I'd ever prayed in my life. It was superficial, honestly. Before that, I was three and a half years sober. I'd say the serenity prayer at the meetings or the Lord's Prayer. I didn't even know the Lord's Prayer when I got sober. Anyway, so um, I'm calling out to God, and I'm asking him not to let me go back to where I came from and to lead me and direct me and just please save me from me. And I'm praying, crying, fell asleep, praying. Now, I want to say this. Most of us that are addicts or alcoholics fear covers every aspect of our life. Fear of being good enough, fear of being found out, fear of this, fear of that, economic insecurity, all of it. And so um, when I woke up the morning, uh, January 1st of 1999, the fear had been removed and the Holy Spirit had taken up residence in me. Mm. A wow. girl like me, mm. who can imagine? And you know, I asked him to take control of my life and my journey. Of course, I'm still here in the flesh, right? So I'm thinking, okay, I still want to do, I want to pick and choose. But he just kept showing up and showing out in my life and started convicting my heart that I needed to live a different way. Mm. Yeah. It's incredible. That's awesome. Incredible. So you, um, so 
what year did you start Healing House? Because you guys are celebrating 20 years now. Yes. So we're getting really. Um, so it, it was 2001, 2002. Yeah, right after 9-11, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I had um, I had bought my mom's house from my brother's, and my mom was a hoarder. It took me four 40-yard dumpsters to clean out the house Ooh. in three and a half years. And I worked my tail off. And as soon as I got it done, I was driving back and forth from uh, Wyandotte County to Kansas City, Missouri, near downtown, like daily. And I was helping a lot of people down there, sponsoring a lot of people. And so I get this house, I fix it all up. Three and a half years, I'm going to church on a regular basis now, getting closer and closer to God. And when Which I- church are you going to? Um, I went to a little church by Bethany Hospital back then mm -hmm. and it was right off is that central um i can't uh what was the name oh my gosh that's all right can i can't remember curious. just a little yeah. bitty church um holy spirit filled had a pastor that could knock the walls down with <laughs> his you know loud <laughs> and i needed somebody in my face at that point and i needed to be in a church that if i wasn't there they missed me and would call and say where you at today we yeah. missed you so i started doing that and um when i got done god it was like he patted me on the back and said great job now sell it and move to the hood of course i'm like pardon me this this house is paid three and a half years i've been working on it and he really put on my heart i needed to go help women by that point, I'd figured out there are 900 women going through inpatient treatment in Kansas City, Missouri every year with less than 30 safe beds. So they were returning. They go to treatment and return to the same circumstance. Yeah, I want to run that statistic again because, like, this is right around the beginning of 2000s, 2001, mm -hmm. yes. two. You found out that in Kansas City in any given year, there's about 900 women going through treatments. And when they get out of treatment, there's only 30 beds. Yes. People didn't want to be bothered. There were men's homes, some, but there were no, hardly no places, two houses for women in our whole city. Wow. And one of the houses, uh, I started Healing House because some of my sponsees were living in one of these homes. And um, it was a real healthy environment. Everybody, you had to take your own to toilet paper into the bathroom you uh your roommate could have her boyfriend spend the night with her in your room uh there were some things that weren't real conducive right. to recovery and so that's why i started it but the lord put on my heart that i needed to do something to help these women had you been uh because your your home the homes that you have now for people you have over 200 people yeah living in homes or apartments now right yeah like that's incredible. Yeah, we have fourteen homes, thirty apartments. Yeah, right now. And and you have both men, women, and children. Yes. Which is not that's fairly unusual. Yeah. For these kinds of ministries, it's it's, it's kind of similar, to like the Oxford home, and isn't it? Yeah. A, not at all. I took all the things I didn't like Oxford home and uh -huh. put them into my home. Yeah. So people, it would be a safe, conducive, yeah, Christian environment yeah. so people could have that transformation it wasn't about staying worldly or staying in your human nature it was about changing that mm -hmm. and that's what achieves long-term sobriety as well it's a spiritual component Absolutely, 100 percent. Right? yeah and i'm convinced 
there is no place like Healing House in the world. And people tell me that all the time. Mm. I hear people, a little girl was talking to me today. She said, you know, I've been in nine treatment centers, or treatment centers or psychiatric hospitals, been in foster care. I've been everywhere. And there's no place on earth like this place. Mm. And I'm like, absolutely. So talk about that because you've gone 20 years now. You've helped 10,000 people. Yeah. You've got over 200 now living in the in 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 homes yes okay so what what are some of the special ingredients that you think makes healing house the special place that you just that you, that you just described love 100 percent love i show love to they're my kids i love them i hug them every day you know all 200 people by name then <laughs> I, I don't want to say that i know most of them but we do have um treatment center that those guys only stay 30 days. Okay. So sometimes right. I don't know their name. Right. All the other people I know their name. I call every baby everybody baby. Uh-huh. And <laughs> and I, you know, I got my first tattoo at 60. <laughs> it was you're, pure, you're ahead of me. It was peer pressure. <laughs> and it says, Welcome home, baby. And nice, nice. That's my, one of your phrases that you've said for 20 years when people come in mm -hmm. they're coming from department of corrections they're coming off the street they're coming from horrific circumstances and i always give everybody a big hug mm. and tell them welcome home yeah and your friend didn't your friend that passed away here in the last didn't she do that to us what was her yeah. name judy judy yeah. yeah she shows up in the uh in the in the documentary yes, yes. Bobby, best friend bobby joe under the influence and she said the same thing right yeah well welcome home for years mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, I i i was so sad when i because i didn't know judy yeah she and, was amazing and i was watching that and i was at the end i wasn't expecting her to nobody is to pass by the end of that show and now know, my so. producer just passed about three weeks ago well what was his name uh rent jones rent jones and yeah i really yeah, because I thought, God, he did a great job. We won. And he was a young man, right? Uh, 55. We won like That's 10 best films in young in film book. festivals. Yeah. yeah. But I think love and community, um, of course, Christ, you know, and I don't have, we don't have to shove a Bible down anybody's throat. I don't have to quote scripture all the time. I live scripture. And the love that people are shown in at Healing House, mm. they want some of our joy. They want to belong and they want to be part of something. Mm. And it is contagious. And so we have 50 employees now. 46 are people that have came through our program and now work there. Mm. Every house has a house mom or a house dad, an assistant. We eat dinner together. We pray together. We have meetings together. We hang out on the weekends. Uh, we have a community garden. So the gardener brought me up a couple five-gallon buckets of blackberries from our garden. So I'm fixing cobblers Ooh. all weekend and sending nice. them to the men's house Dang. and women's home. I need to come. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I fix the best gumbo in the world. And it is just for the first time in people's life, they feel like they belong and that they're accepted. That's awesome. You know, Christ finds us where we're at. Mm -hmm. We don't find Christ in our time. He finds us in our brokenness. And due to that brokenness, I got to say, everybody that comes through Healing House, 
has exhausted, usually exhausted any other options, you mm-hmm. know, uh, coming to Christ is not, does it sound like the right, you know, I don't want to do that is the attitude, but once they come and they experience that love and community, they want, they want mm-hmm. to be part. It's, it's just incredible. People come in and there's no light behind their eyes and they are so broken. And within a few days, they physically start changing right in front of you. Their skin's shining now. You start seeing a glimmer of hope come out of their eyes. They start smiling in a week or two. They start laughing, and they almost feel guilty that they're laughing because, yeah. you know, I've done so many bad things. I'm not worthy of having joy. I said, God wants you to have joy. He wants you to have the fullness of life. And he brought you out of that dark to be in the light, honey. And... um I see Mary, I'm the luckiest girl in the world. Now you've heard my story, you've seen the documentary. You might not think I'm the luckiest girl Mm -hmm. in the world, but I am. I've lived two entirely different lives. And um, you know, you've heard in and out of relationships. I've been in the best relationship of my life these last 23 years and that's with Christ. Mm -hmm. And I don't look for something else to fill me up or make me feel good. Mm -hmm. He's my constant companion, my peace comforter. All those things are true, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I have a beautiful family um, around me every day and I get to see miracles every day, every day. (laughs) Yeah, it's inspiring. Yes. You know, that's, I've really fallen in love with the recovery community in the last almost three years. Yeah. I've, I've loved the honesty, the vulnerability. I love the fact that, you know, people aren't, you know, nobody's putting on airs or, yeah. yeah. And I think too, you know, like I pastored, you know, for year, for decades, but you know, people can come to church for all different kinds of reasons. Right. They can have a big argument on the way to church and then they get out of their car and they put their Hi. smiles on and yeah. everything's good. <laughs> yes. And, but they can show up for at church for all kinds of reasons, which is not bad, but, but nobody shows up at an AA meeting or the healing house faking it. Nope. You, you, it's you, the rawness mm, of it yeah. all. Everybody and everybody that's there, none of them showed up with a fake smile either. Right. They, they right. all showed up almost at the bottom. Absolutely. They're they're about ready to die. They're about ready to lose family, loved ones, friends. They're about ready to, you know. Yeah. My first AA meeting, I was on crutches. My leg was broken. My ankle was broken. I showed up on crutches. I was drunker than Hooters Coot. And uh, on my crutches was broken leg. And I actually fell in the door of AA, literally tripped and fell in the door of AA. You know, we go to uh, recovery meetings out at Church of the Resurrection in mm-hmm. Leewood. Yeah. And I cannot tell you how many times people have reached out to me and said, thank God for sending your people. I, I live out here and I feel like I kind of have to put on like I'm a soccer mom and everything's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And your people come in and it allows me to have the vulnerability and the rawness right. of what's really happening in my life. I don't have to pretend to be anybody. Yeah. And there's something that, it's that is amazing. Yes. Well, and that's what, that's one of the big things I fell in love with the recovery community about is that brutal, that, you know, that rigorous honesty. Yes. 
And that's just so powerful when you see when people, when humans get in a circle and share their, get very vulnerable and share their hearts, the spirit does move in that Absolutely. environment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I've been down there at the meetings on Thursday yeah. night at Church of the Resurrection, both in Leewood. And then they started a new one down at the downtown location. Okay. And I've been there a few times too. Nice. Um, so I've seen that, that interaction of different. Yeah. Two different, different worlds. Different worlds of people in those settings. That help one another. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah, so cool. Do you, um, so the people, when they in, when they live in these homes, they have a, a ha what do you call it? A house, house mom or a house, or house dad. dad, depending on what on man, men or women. And then, and, the, and they, they get drug tested, right? Is that a weekly or randomly done randomly. thing? Randomly. Um, we work with parole and probation, Department of Correction, courts. Um, we have a pregnant women's home and a new mother's home. Um, so we work with DFS. We, I mean, we, we, we are very mm -hmm. respected in the recovery world. Mm -hmm. And when agencies really want, they have somebody that, that they believe mm -hmm. really want it, we're the first place they think of. Yeah. And it's um, so like at the mother's home, I mean, that manager takes them back and forth to all their um, pregnancy check-ins, uh, gets them hooked up with diaper. I mean, we have baby showers for them. It is like a big family. The house mm -hmm. leaders are all people that have came through mm -hmm. our program and now are in recovery and want to give back what they were given. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. That's awesome. And it is transformed. When I got to this area, it was the hood. Right. I mean, we're talking gunfire every three hours. Pimps, prostitutes. Northeast Kansas City, Missouri, for those of you who are from outside of Kansas City. Rough. Really rough area. Yes. Independence Avenue would have been, you know, places, you know. it's, it's Oh, yeah. yeah. We had prostitutes, Tough. gang members, drug dealers, pimps. Two months after I got the first house, a, a pimp a drug dealer moved in right next door. Mm. So I claimed his house in Jesus' name, and a year and a half later. And we 20 got years ago, you could buy a house down there for how much? Oh, 35, 50,000. I got a 23-room nur old nursing home for $50,000. Okay. And then 20 years later, you've rehabbed so many of these houses and other people have come down there and rehabbed houses. Now, what does it cost to get a house down there? Well, now? I've worked myself out of business almost. <laughs> uh, congratulations, Bobby Joe. Uh, so like the first, uh, the first house, when I got done, when I bought it for 50, it appraised for 194,000 when I got done and it appraises for a half a million now. And the cheapest, cruddiest house down there that has not been remodeled is starting at $160,000. This is like the economic lift that has oh, come yeah. to the community over Our whole community, 20 years. Our whole community has been transformed. You don't see prostitutes on our street, no gang members, no drug dealers. Our streets are clean, but you got to remember, we got 400 eyes in our community watching out for one another. And it I, now we're doing, we got a strip mall, we're putting in businesses, we got a free gym for our community. It's really everything, and we walk every step of the way with it. Mm. And it's, uh, 
you know, our we are considered the number one housing in the state of Missouri. Mm. And that comes from Department of Mental Health. Wow. So. Well, that's it's so inspirational. Thank you. And I'm 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 grateful to have met you and Amen. to have been able to connect with you. How how would people, you know, if like do you need volunteers? Yes. If people like what kind of volunteers do you need? How do people connect with Healing House that maybe aren't themselves in the recovery community, people that don't need to be, but there's I'm I'm guessing you need people to help rehab houses, you need people yes. to be I don't know, mentors. I don't know what you need. Right. What, tell people what they need and how to connect if they want to. We have GED classes. Uh, so we need, we have 11 that are in GED classes. We have one instructor right now. So a couple other people and math is a big thing for most of our people. That's what they struggle with. And uh, of course, you know, English, uh, things like that. Uh, we have at a few of our meetings, we have all the children uh, meet in our um, family reunification room. So even somebody that would want to watch the kids for a couple hours, um, we have folks that could help us with grant writing, bookkeeping, just anything. Uh, decorating, we take donations, gently use donations. And we have 30 apartments and we have 14 homes. So we're always maintenance stuff yes fixing up yeah. lots of maintenance these are all old homes that we have rehabbed and um anything you could think of yeah. basically we can use <laughs> uh and we love people. people is there a process like how would they do they connect with you through the website or do yes they go to healinghousekc.org and um there is um, or Healing House KC, go there and then you can do the, um, there's a volunteer information form. And so you just fill that out. It will go to our marketing director. She'll get in touch with you, find out what you like to do. And then we'll get you, there's always stuff. We have the huge family garden. We have beehives. Uh, you know, anything you could think. Now we're just getting ready to open a spa and a beauty uh, shop. We're getting ready to open a coffee shop and cafe. Um, we have the gym. I mean, just mm -hmm. it is all over the place. Yeah. It's just it's exciting every day. Uh, God never tells me to sit still. <laughs> He's like, OK, do this, do this. He continues to show the needs of the people and then we address it. And bigger than just our individual lives, the impact that's happening in our community and bringing our neighbors together. We live in a big refugee area mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't speak the same language, right. but there is one language that we all speak and that's the beauty of a smile. Mm. And we share that yeah. and we all get along really good, even though we don't speak the same language and just bringing our community together. You know what, if you know your neighbor, you're probably gonna look out for your neighbor. Mm. If you don't know them, you're not that invested, right? Mm -hmm. But once we keep bringing all the neighbors together and being part of, it changes our environment. Yeah. Well, it's it's awesome. Um, having gone down there several times over the last many months, I, you know, you can feel. I think you can feel the atmosphere mm -hmm. around where you're doing this work. It's it, 
it's it's charged with uh, energy and love and all that so people tell me all the time they say you know the only place i felt the holy spirit like this has been in the holy land and i hear that multiple times they come down for the friday night like man i haven't felt like this since i was in the holy land Hmm. so that's pretty cool being compared to that Yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah well i've been to both I yes. think I would, I think my Friday night experience was, was a highlight. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I got to go to the Holy Land too. And yeah. it is, it's amazing. Yeah. It's the Bible brought to life, right? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, folks, um, check out healinghousekc.org. Yes. Uh, check out Bobby Joe under the influence, Amazon yes. prime. Very, very well done documentary. Yeah. And thank you, Bobby Joe, for being on Spirituality Adventures. Thank yes. you for the work that you're doing with uh, people in the recovery world. Thank you for the work that you're doing in Kansas City. Uh, it's it's really just a just a blessing to uh, have met you thank and you. Uh, connecting with you. Thank I love you so the life much. that the Lord's given me. I, it's my life, and I yeah. love it. All right. Well, God bless you. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures, and we'll see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.